Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello, Brendan O'Shea here, welcoming you to this edition of Tall Poppies, where we meet the conductor, Simone Young. When I think of Australia, I think of light. And it is light in a lot of different ways. It is physical light, the sunlight, the quality of the sunlight. It is the light on the ocean. It is the light on the beach. It's the colour of the night sky. But it's also the light, the lightness I feel in myself when the plane touches down and I know I'm back home. It's the light that I see when somebody cracks a joke or tells you you're such a dag. Um, it's a lightness of spirit as well as a, as a physical lightness. Yeah, that's it. Simone Young grew up in Sydney where she studied at the city's Conservatorium of Music. Already in 1983, at the age of 22, she started to work for Opera Australia as a repetiteur, a title that refers to the person responsible for coaching singers and playing the piano for music and production rehearsals. At Opera Australia, she was mentored by other Australian luminaries, the likes of conductors Charles McCarris. Richard Bonning and Stuart Challender, and by 1986 she was conducting at the Sydney Opera House and appointed a resident conductor with Opera Australia. Then, in the late 80s, a leap into the unknown. Simone moved to Germany and took up her repetiteur position, assisting the conductor James Conlon at the Cologne Opera. This led to further engagements, including working alongside the legendary Daniel Barenboim at the Berlin State Opera and the Bayreuth Festival. And in 1998, she was appointed principal conductor of the Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra in Norway. But Australia was never too far from her sights. In the year 2000, Simone was given what she terms as one of the greatest honours of her career when she conducted the National Anthem at the Olympic Games in Sydney. Not long after, Simone returned to take up the position of Chief Conductor at Opera Australia in Sydney. She says, despite the three years with the company being successful artistically, the financial pressures that the company suffered did not allow her to achieve all she would have liked to in her time there. So Simone Young returned to Europe to take up the position of Chief Executive Officer at one of Germany's biggest opera houses, the Hamburg State Opera. And she was also Chief Conductor of the Philharmonic Orchestra in Hamburg. She held both these positions until 2015. 
Well, there have been countless highlights in Simone Young's career. Alongside conducting most of the world's great orchestras, she was also the first woman to conduct the Vienna State Opera in 1993 and then in 2005, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. She's also recorded the symphonies of Bruckner, Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle and the complete Brahms symphonies. And Simone has been a great mentor to a number of Australian musicians. She says she thinks it's incredibly important for young conductors to see just how tough the working side of this job is. If you don't want to work hard, don't choose this profession. Indeed, it was in the midst of a heavy rehearsal and performance schedule in Berlin, the Sydneyite Simone Young sat down to chat with me about her somewhat phenomenal career. Simone Young, how wonderful to, to meet up with you here again and thank you for taking some time from your incredibly busy schedule to talk to me. And I'm going to tell you, first of all, the name of the podcast and it's called mm. Tall Poppies. <laughs> I've been able to keep that quiet for a while. What sort of reaction do you have to that term? Well, I have quite a positive reaction to it, in fact. A certain amount of amusement. I mean, I love the fact that Australian... Uh, Australians are generally so self-deprecating and we take criticism and negative terminology generally to be compliments. And I love the fact also that there's a recording company in Australia that records uh, contemporary music, which is called Tall Poppies, for the very same reason, sort of the ironic that, you know, yes, it's great to be a tall poppy and you'll be celebrated for it, but watch out because you'll get your head sliced off at some point. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Let's let's jump back quite a few years and, mm-hmm. and back to the eighties, of course, before you came. Right. We didn't actually meet, but we actually I actually encountered you already in the beginning of the nineties because I was living in Cologne. Okay. And that is, of course, where you you landed and started as a co-repetiteur and started your work. James Conlon, for example, mm-hmm. was the person at the conductor that you were working with a lot at the time. And your first experience of German orchestras and German musicians, all those sort of things. Yeah. How prepared did you feel when you left Australia for what? awaited you here. Did you feel you were were prepared well professionally? Actually, yes, I felt I was very well prepared because I'd already had three years as a member of the music staff at Opera Australia in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And in those three years, I had covered a great many of the areas of expertise that are required in the industry. So coaching, playing the piano, accompanying rehearsals, but also training the chorus, training the kids' chorus, doing backstage conducting, prompting, as in a maestro suggeritore, which is where you actually conduct the stage um, from the prompt box. You're not just giving text. Um, So, you know, lots of very intense musical activity. And when I arrived in Germany, I was only 25 years old and I already had this body of experience. I'd conducted some contemporary music. I'd conducted some operetta. I'd been assistant to Bonning and assistant to Stuart Challender. I'd assisted Carlo Cellario on various things. I'd played for Macaris. Yeah, I had a massive experience for a 25-year-old. And in 1986, which was when I first came to Cologne for four months, on a kind of an exchange uh, set up, whereas Opera Australia basically gave me four months on salary and said, go away and get some foreign experience. So I went to Cologne. And in those days, 25-year-olds in Germany were still at uni. You know, you didn't graduate till you were 28 or 29. So I was really young. I was the only woman on the music staff in Cologne. There was, there was, an, there was a much older woman, Erica Deheer, 
who immediately kind of took me under her wing. She was just brilliant and she would have, you know, her scores and she'd say, you know, this is where the singers have to breathe because if they don't breathe here, they always think they can breathe in the next bar, but if they breathe here, then they can get through the next. I mean, she had such detailed knowledge of the repertoire. She was fabulous, but she was kind of like the grand doyen of the company. And the rest of the music staff were all men. And um, but a lot of English speakers. It was very interesting in those days. The people who were music staff, and you find it still a lot in Germany, tend to be come from the Anglo-Saxon music training world because we're sight readers, mm. and possibly those of us who make the effort to learn the language well enough to go and work in Germany also then have a certain natural aptitude for languages and the whole thing. So, But anyway, I found myself very well experienced, very well trained, but just soaking it up like a sponge. And of course, what I had no experience of were great acoustics. Um, my only experience of an opera house, of an opera, of a concert hall was the, the concert hall in Sydney or the, the opera theatre in Sydney, neither of which had great acoustics and one of which has terrible acoustics. So I was being exposed to world-class orchestra suddenly in playing in great acoustics. That was a whole different ballgame. And the depth of the ensemble singers in a company like Cologne in the 80s was pretty extraordinary. So these were things that I was possibly not prepared for. But, yeah, I felt well-equipped and uh, my qualities and abilities were recognised and valued and I was immediately given an offer of a position to come back to and we did the next year. Mm. Yeah, the plan was two years in Europe. That was 1987. <laughs> <laughs> so 30 years yeah. later, this is your 30th anniversary. Mm. Yeah. It is indeed. Yeah. James Conlon, and then, of course, Barenboim, already mm -hmm. in the beginning of the 90s. Mm -hmm. Bayreuth, and, of course, here in Berlin, mm -hmm. uh, here at the Staatsoper, his assistant for a period of time. That must have been quite, quite something, all of a sudden becoming the assistant of uh, one of these true, huge names in the music world. One of these true greats. Yeah, it came about in the strangest way. I mean, we'd, we'd been robbed by our nanny. <laughs> Oh, no. And suddenly we had no money. We had no savings. It was it was all gone. We managed to get some of it back, thank goodness. It was just classic fraud. It was terrible business. And suddenly I just needed a summer job. And so I approached James Conlon, James Conlon and said, can you recommend me to anybody for a summer job? And he came back and said, well, Tony Papano is leaving Barenboim as his assistant and Barenboim needs a pianist for four weeks. How do you feel about going to Bayreuth? I, you know, of course, I was terrified but excited at the same time. And Daniel and I just got on brilliantly and he liked what I was able to do and he proceeded to give me opportunities. They were very exciting times, terrifying but exciting. Yes, I mean, coming to Bayreuth and, and your first time there and and actually now, of course, being the Strauss and Wagner specialist that you are, these were your first encounters in many ways, right? Well, I was very lucky because I was around the, the sort of aborted ring cycle in Australia. Mm. I was involved in that. I prompted Rheingold. I prompted Valkyra. I played Valkyra. I coached all these the operas and then I 
played some Siegfried for Charlie McCarris when he did it concert town in Melbourne. So I actually arrived in Germany already with a lot of this under my fingers. Mm. And then I was involved in the ring cycle in Cologne that Hans Wallet conducted. And so I, you know, at the age of 30, had really quite a solid command of the piano side of the ring cycle and of the vocal parts. It's just sort of the way the cards fell, you know. Mm. And this was very useful. And in those days, I was really a very accomplished pianist. I wouldn't pretend to be to claim that I was such today, but in those days, I could really play my way around these scores very well. And that is highly valued. It's a very specific skill. Mm. Um, and Daniel recognized that. And of course, when I then coincidences, you know, James Conlon got sick in Cologne and I stepped in to conduct Lady Macbeth of Matsensk, which Harry Kupfer had directed. So Harry knew all about Fantastic production. A fabulous production back in those days. And I had rehearsed it for James in James' absence anyway. And so Harry knew all about me and Harry was doing the ring cycle with Baron Boyman in Bayreuth. So, of course, I arrived with... Harry knowing all about me with the musicians in the orchestra who were from Cologne, full of my praise from me having taken over this difficult opera at very short notice. And um, so I sort of arrived with a reputation that was quite solid, which, you know, at the time I didn't think so much about, but I look back now and for a 30-year-old woman in 1991, that was a big deal. And now, of course, I look back at it and realise that actually for a 30-year-old, anybody, it's a big deal. So, But at the time, it was the work I did, and it was all about doing the work, always has been. Then the guest conducting started in Vienna and Berlin and then Baron took me onto the staff in Berlin. And at the same time, around then, 93, 94, I was debuting in Vienna and in Paris and in London at the Garden and a couple of years later at the Met. And that was sort of the time the whole sort of career, as we talk about it, really took off. Let's start with the, the experience, of course, of jumping in for James Conlon. Mm. Uh, your first experience of conducting a German orchestra, the Gürtzenich Orchestra there in Cologne? Well, the orchestra knew me already because we're talking the jump-in was in 91 and I'd already been conducting the orchestra since 1988. Mm. Admittedly, in all sort of the lighter side of the repertoire, the Rossinis, Entführung, um, magic flute, magic flute for kids, some ballet repertoire, all that sort of stuff. But in terms of sort of major operatic repertoire, this jump in doing Lady Macbeth was the first really sort of big gig that I did. It's funny. For me, it's always been about doing the work. It sounds really trite. It's the old thing about, you know, the show must go on. You do what you have to do in order to perform that work. And Sometimes it's about supporting the stage. Sometimes it's about helping the orchestra through it. Sometimes it's about a truly exciting evening and sometimes it just all comes together. And when you have this sort of a situation with somebody jumping in, I mean, I always say you get a 20% bonus because nobody expects perfection. And then when things really work and it's all terribly exciting and, and I knew every single note of that score. 
and I wouldn't have had the nerve to do it had it been otherwise. But yeah, that that doing that sort of thing really stood me in very good stead in those days because there was no talking, there was no discussion about things. It was just a case of walk into the pit and do the job. And it either worked or it didn't. And I got the, then the support from the orchestras. Then yeah. it was the same in Vienna, it was the same in the Berlin. The support always came from within the orchestras, which is great. That's what you want when you're starting out. Oh, come on. The, the first woman in the world to conduct the <laughs> Vienna Philharmonic. Now, they're not exactly known for their, um, what shall we say, relaxed uh, mood and uh, easygoing style. How did it feel before that? Well, again, it was one of those things. It was a huge deal in Vienna, the whole thing about being the first woman to conduct at the Staatsoper. For me, the big deal was making my debut at the Staatsoper. It was none about the first woman business. It was the fact that I was a kid from Manly in Sydney and I was now going to be standing on the podium that had been the home of so many of the people that I just, you know, basically worship. A funny story, just before I was about to go in, the, the guy who looks after the setup of the pit came to see me and asked if I wanted a stool or a chair or height of the stand and that sort of thing. And I asked him, I, I like having a small stool or a ledge or something that I can just sort of perch on, balance on a bit. And I asked him if he had anything like that. And he looked at me as, as though a light had come on in his face. Ah. There's a little bicycle seat formed thing that Carrion had made specially oh for God. him that sits on the wall of the pit and you just sort of perch on it and shaped like a bicycle seat. And apparently it was the first time anybody had asked for anything like that since Carrion's day. And, of course, the moment he said that, I freaked out internally and thought, oh, my God. <laughs> So that's what it was all about for me. But, yeah, for the for the orchestra, for the house, the whole woman thing was huge. And in some ways it kind of helped me because it put the whole event into perspective. I had a wonderful father who was very good at dealing with nerves in any given situation and would always give me very good advice about performing. And he said, you know, in any given situation, he was a lawyer by profession but had been a school teacher before that. He said, you always want to sum up what are the best and worst possible outcomes of the situation. And if the worst possible outcome is so bad that it outweighs the best possible, then you don't go into it. Mm. But if it's the other way around, then you're silly to be nervous. So I stood outside the door of the pit waiting to go in and thinking, okay, the best possible outcome is that I will walk into this pit and it'll be like being a pianist and suddenly being given one of the world's great pianos to play on. I'm being given the opportunity to do Love Away that I adore with a great cast and a fabulous orchestra in a beautiful opera house and they will love me, I will love them and we will work together for the next 25 years which is actually what's happened. But the worst possible outcome is that it could be two and a half hours, the most embarrassing two and a half hours of my life. They might do anything other than what I'm directing them to do. And at the end of it, I was to walk out of the pit having been the first woman to conduct in the Vienna State Opera. That's not such a bad outcome. And with that, I took a deep breath and walked into the pit. And um, I've, you know, I've just been conducting... The Gambler by Prokofiev in Vienna. And yeah, next year it'll be 25 years since I first debuted there. So it's pretty nice. And I have a very nice relationship with the orchestra now. Mm. And of course, since then, there's been a huge generational change in the orchestra. There are actually 
it's a little terrifying, but there are actually not that many people still playing in the orchestra who played back then in my debut. And with generational change, you get changes of attitude and changes of, well, the whole thing. So from being terrifying, it's gone to be a place where I really feel quite at home. Ladies and gentlemen, please be upstanding for the Australian national anthem. It'll begin with human nature to be joined by the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and then Julie Anthony and choir. Well, speaking of home, of course, home was Sydney and then back there in 2000 for the Olympics, which, of course, for many Australians were a real sort of turning point. And, you know, we're, Australia shows it's grown. Well, perhaps we could say we're teenagers anyhow but as a country <laughs> in many ways. That must have been quite something. Oh, it really was. And, you know, people sometimes ask me that silly question, what, what's been the most exciting moment of your life? And it's very hard to say, but I do have to say that walking out into that stadium to conduct the national anthem in front of millions of viewers around the world and having my husband and daughters seated there in the arena and, and having in the stadium and knowing my parents, my brother were watching... That was a very special feeling and, and one I, I still feel very honoured. It wasn't, I wasn't necessarily going to be the only possible choice for that and a lot of other possibilities. I'm immensely grateful that I was given that opportunity. Yeah, the Olympics were pretty exciting and Leo Schofield put on an excellent cultural festival to go with it. Mm. And uh, I have to say in the middle of all of it, I escaped all the hubbub in Sydney and visited Uluru for the first time and that was also I would list that up there in one of the life-changing experiences. Bizarrely I was studying Janacek's Kacha Kavanova at the time in Czech um, which might seem quite incongruous but there was really something wonderful about studying the work of a fairly naturalistic romantic composer if you like, in the shadow of something that is just so mind-bogglingly spiritual and powerful, I found the whole experience really intensely moving. I've been back since and uh, I'm full of intentions to go back again. I find the, the red heart, the centre, just overwhelming, which is bizarre, seeing as I was, I'm a Sydney girl, born and bred and, you know, urban and all of that, but... Again, my dad invested in us a great love of, of the West and of, of the dry country. And there is something deeply moving about the Red Centre. Of course, if we look at your career up to that moment, 2000, mm. the obvious thing would be, of course, for Australia to get you back. And they did. Mm. And you went back to Opera mm. Australia. Mm. And it wasn't probably one of the most, what shall we say, positive periods of your career in many ways. Well, curiously enough, artistically, it was a very, very positive part of my life and career in that I was able to really invest in the ensemble of the company. I was really able to, I felt I was equipped to make decisions about which singers to really promote and which singers to kind of invest in for the future. I was determined to improve the lot of the orchestra who 
play in poss- what is possibly one of the worst pits in the world of a major major house. And I'm staggered that in the current renovations of the opera house that the pit nothing is being done to the pit. I find that a I find that mind-boggling, but hey, it's got nothing to do with me anymore. Mm. Um, but that is one of the most hardworking and really talented orchestras who are never heard to their advantage because of that appalling acoustic. And I really feel that in the three years I was there and also in the lead-up because I was I was designated a good four years in advance and we kind of built up to it, that I was really able to make a very positive and constructive contribution to the artistic standards of the company. And I had a marvellous team around me and it's very nice that people still refer to those years as some of the golden years of the company, which is great. But I know all too well the the financial pressures that the company is under. Mm. I know the difficult decisions that that involve. Yes, I was massively undermined by a, I believe still, an ill-informed board. And I look at other colleagues in the theatre world in Australia and in various artistic enterprises in Australia, and I see the problem of boards being at once under-informed about the industry that they are working on and yet making significant decisions that are going to impact artistically on those organisations. I think there still is a lot of work to do in Australia on how the boards of these major organisations work. But yes, when it became obvious that I was not going to have the support that had been indicated at the start of my time, that it would be there, then it became obvious that our ways were going to part but the way it all happened was completely unnecessary deeply destructive for the company very hurtful for me personally at the time but once again I focused all my energies on just doing the work and we did some amazing things in 2003 despite the fact that the company and I were all under tremendous pressure but when I think of the Meistersinger at the Capitol our new production of Lulu Amongst other things, these were great achievements and achievements I look back on now with tremendous pride. Rightly so. It was not so long after that that we then met in Hamburg, Mm. just before you were about to start your contract there as artistic director of the the opera Mm -hmm. and uh, musical director of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And we we discussed these finances and you you Mm -hmm. said to me, well, you know, in one year here I've got more than I had (laughs) For three years in Australia, for, an, for the Australian National Opera Company. It was a successful 10 years, wasn't it, in many ways, yeah? It was in many ways. I mean, it was also difficult. Those, those 10 years, the global financial crisis happened in the middle of that. Mm. And like most organisations, some of the stuffing fell out of the middle of what we were doing financially and we had to make some hard decisions about some productions that had to be cut and so there were some painful decisions all round. But I look back on those 10 years, I left the company in very healthy artistic and financial state. And yes, I I started off for five years, was extended for another five years beyond that, at which time I already said, folks, this is going to be it. Nobody seemed to believe that. they. (laughs) But um, I always knew that 10 years was the maximum. I think unless it's a truly exceptional relationship, like Barenboim here in Berlin or Jimmy Levine in New York, I mean, and these are absolutely the exceptions. After 10 years, an organisation and an artist both need new input, new questions to be asked of themselves and new directions to prevent becoming stale. It's always the difficulty, you know, what is, 
what is running smoothly becomes familiar and then runs the risk of becoming complacent. So for me, 10 years has always been a nice round figure. More than that, I really didn't want it to be. And so that was all, it all worked out very well. It was immensely satisfying artistically. We were able to do a number of wonderful new productions, make many recordings. I was able to increase the orchestra by another eight players, as well as institute an academy for the orchestra. I was able to expand the ensemble of the company. These were all things I had intended to do in Sydney and was not given the financial support to do it. And it left the company in Hamburg stronger. You know, Angela Merkel taught us a thing or two about getting out of the financial difficulties, investing in the strengths and investing in development rather than just cutting back on everything um, because you cut back too far and you're just you're cutting into the, the meat of the – there's no fat, fat left to cut back. Um, and once you start cutting into the substance, it starts to hurt and it's going to start to show. I would say, you know, the years of the global financial crisis were tough, but I had an excellent business manager of the company, really superb, and everything was extremely transparent. Everything was well discussed. I had a good board. The Minister for Culture and the Minister for Finance were both members of the board, so they were well aware of all the um, solid and difficult decisions that we were making to make things work, and these are all positives. Mm. So, yes, I'm very happy with those 10 years. It's a young person's job. For 10 years, I worked basically 14 hours a day, seven days a week. It's just exhausting. But it was yeah, immensely satisfying. Of course, you have two children, which we cannot uh, overlook, and a husband mm -hmm. who's quite happy to stay out of the limelight, as mm -hmm. you've told me once before. Mm -hmm. We are talking about investing in the future. We're talking about fostering talent at the same time. Now, something that you have been involved with, of course, a lot over the years, and indeed, of course, like us all, we're all particularly interested in Australians. A couple of singers, Lisa Gustine, for example, and uh, Stephen Davis Lim. And yeah, they're, they're, I mean, Australia really punches well above its weight in term, when you consider the population of Australia and the number of really interesting singers working internationally. Not just singers, but orchestral musicians as well, conductors. It's been... A, a lovely development over the last few years to get involved with AWO, the Australian World Orchestra that um, Alex Brieger got off and running, which has, I think, brought to the attention of Australian audiences just how well represented is Australia is in big, major international orchestras, in Berlin, Phil, Vienna, Phil, but also all over the UK, all over the States. That's pretty exciting. And it's the same with singers. And I have long felt and I still feel that there are major problems with conductor training, both in Australia and elsewhere. And as an autodidact myself, I mean, never took conducting lessons, but somebody who benefited enormously from being the assistant of fine conductors, I do believe that the system of mentoring and assistance 
is really the way forward for conductors. And I have always tried to take on young assistants in whom I've had faith that they have enormous potential. And I'm very happy to say that people like Nick Carter and now Dan Carter, they're not related, just have the same name, young Jennifer Condon, who's working with me here at the moment. There have been some young Englishmen, Alexander Soddy, who is now music director in Mannheim, is just making his Met debut this month. There's another young Englishman who's working with me, there's a young German who's working with me, who just made his debut in Hamburg. I really feel very strongly that this is the way forward. You can only learn so much in a conservatory. Mm -hmm. And I know that the four months I spent following Pierre Boulez around in Paris in 1987 and the time I spent assisting Barenboim in Bayreuth or assisting Conlon on major projects in in Cologne or before that even in Australia working with Chilario, working with Stuart Challender, Richard Bonning on all the repertoire that these guys were specialists in. This has massively informed what I do as a conductor. And this has nothing to do with aping people or copying people. It has everything to do with benefiting from their their experience and their knowledge. And then I think it's incredibly important for young conductors to see just how tough the working side of life is. And that even somebody who's at my stage, I still get up at six in the morning and study for two hours before the day starts. And I do a half an hour of language study every day. You don't want to work hard don't choose this profession. And people are often a little bit surprised by that. And I know some of the boys who've worked for me, some of the girls who've worked for me, have said, you know, whoa, is baptism by fire? And that's just really, really solid and intense. But that's what the profession is. So I feel very strongly that there should be more mentoring going on. Barenboim has an excellent reputation in this respect. It's very interesting. If you look around at people who've been Daniel's assistants over the years, Tony Papano, Asha Fish, mm. myself, mm. Philippe Jordan. Mm. I mean, it's sort of like a, a bit of a who's who of the 40 and 50-year-olds in the industry now. And that's pretty interesting. And I think that's amongst his many musical accolades. That is something that is possibly not acknowledged as widely and praised as widely as it should be. The development of the next generation, I think it's a responsibility all artists have. Let's look a little bit, though, also at the development of music in the sense of new music, new compositions. Mm. We met, of course, on another occasion for Brett Dean's mm. premiere. You managed to bring mm. his first opera to Hamburg and its mm-hmm. uh, German premiere there. You see a lot of compositions. Probably. You see a lot of new compositions. You're working on something new here at the mm. moment here in Berlin. That People are getting quite excited about Australian composers in the last couple of years. Do you think that's quite valid? Absolutely. Um, And I think there are probably a couple of people that one can thank specifically for that. One is Brett Dean, of course, who, and I was at the opening night at Glyndebourne of his new opera. It's an extraordinary piece. Mm. Very exciting. And I'm delighted that it's going to go to Australia. That's great news. Lisa Lim was doing wonderful things. Nigel Westlake in a whole different style of, of writing. You know, there are so many fine Australian composers A lot who say in Australia, and this is, I believe, a bit of a problem in contemporary music generally, is that it tends to be very nationally defined, probably because most funding for composition comes from then the country's 
budgets. And the few composers who are sort of internationally recognized beyond their borders, that's a pretty small handful. But just like mentoring the next generation of artists, I believe very strongly that if uh, musicians and conductors who are extremely well established in the mainstream don't do their bit to support the work of emerging artists, emerging composers, then we're not really fulfilling our responsibilities. But I look back at one of my musical heroes, Klemperer. Klemperer was always performing new music of his time and yet never had that sort of, you know, a lot of conductors these days kind of get a stamp on them that says, oh, he's a specialist for 20th century music. What does that mean? Does that mean you can count to five and count to seven, but you can't do romantic music? I believe conductors should be good at a range of music. It should be about making music, not about defining niches. So I deliberately and actively encourage my management to make sure that my calendar contains a good balance of standard repertoire and new music as well. I feel very strongly about that. So you've mentioned him a couple of times already, your father today. irish Croatian heritage. Mm. In other words, like us all, we are all the children of refugees. Mm, absolutely. And you mentioned before Angela Merkel. Mm. Angela Merkel, of course, welcoming mm. close to a million refugees into Germany. You're living in Germany. You're involved with Germany in many ways and you see that happening. Mm. What about the policies in Australia? I find it really difficult. I, on the one hand, I have to say I have no solution I really feel for people who are in the position where they are making decisions in the political arena because clearly they have to have public support if they're going to implement policy. Yet to define policy by whether or not it's going to achieve public support is very, very difficult. As the grandchild of three economic refugees... That's pretty standard for our generation that we have grandparents who came to Australia. In those days, it was referred to as seeking a better future for their children and was was hailed as a sign of bravery and courage when I think that my Irish grandfather never returned to his native country. He never saw any of his family ever again. I mean, it's mind-boggling. I live in Europe, but I go home two or three times a year. It's a whole different way of life. I am deeply troubled by it. I feel very strongly, and I have to say this, I, I feel very strongly that the way things are being dealt with in Australia and the general sort of sway of populist right-wing thinking, I am deeply troubled by. I don't know where my country that is that I loved and praised and trumpeted aloud the generosity and the welcoming spirit of Australia. I don't know where that's gone, but I don't pretend to have 
any sort of solutions. I think Merkel's quite extraordinary in that she actually, even though she is a conservative politician, she takes a moral and ethical stand on certain subjects and I think she's amazing for it. But she also has enormous stability in her government and so is able to do that, though I, I do like to think that she would do even if she didn't. I live in the UK now. I, I watch with horror as, as the chaos that is Brexit is unfolding and I am deeply troubled by these general movements. I was discussing this with a friend the other day because, you know, in the opera world, in the musical world, we live in a very nice little bubble. We're all kind of from somewhere else. We all have family backgrounds that are mixed and from all over the globe and we're, you know, everybody is sort of politically thinking in the same direction and we're all, it's, it's a bubble. It's a bit like a profession that is like, you know, somebody's Facebook page. You only ever hear from the people that you agree with. And it's very troubling when you look outside that bubble. I don't know what the solutions are, but cruelty and ignorance. I mean, I, it, it all comes back to ignorance, surely. Cruelty and ignorance are never going to be positive forces in a, in a society. Mm. There must be generosity and there must be openness and there must be information and there must be education. They're, they're like surely the founding stones of any sort of civilised society. mentioned before your two daughters and I'm wondering in your household how Australia was it how much of Australia we were able to sort of give to them how Australian do they feel well they feel very Australian which is quite amusing because one was born in Germany and the other one was born <laughs> in the UK we've taken them home as often as we can and we've shown them as much of Australia as we can and they feel very close to their Australian relatives my husband's the eldest of five siblings and there are lots of cousins and for Ivan and Lucy, who now both live in London, one of the advantages of living in London is everybody drops in sooner or later. <laughs> There's always some relative sleeping on the sofa. <laughs> yes, they feel very strongly Australian. Both have now Irish passports and British passports and Australian passports, so they're, you know, three nationalities. <laughs> But there's still no question as who they'll be cheering on in the ashes. <laughs> what about in the workplace? How much of Australia were you able to bring in there? For example, Kosky, Barry Kosky here in, in Berlin has uh, basically got the entire opera house to drop the Z form in German. And most people are, are referring to each other as do and by their first names. What about yourself? Was that something you didn't want or you wouldn't encourage or...? Well, that's kind of the case in the working environment in an opera house anyway. I mean, it was a little different for me, I think. I mean, I hesitate to bring the woman subject into mm -hmm. things again, but 30 years ago when I first came to Germany, there was a very different feel about du and sie and being addressed by first name and surname and so on. 
And um, these were things I had to learn that not only went with formality, but also with respect. There's a big difference between lack of formality and lack of respect. The moment you switch to do in German, you risk inviting a lack of respect, which as the sole woman at the top of an institution was something that I could not afford to do. But I have a great many colleagues with whom I was perdu when there was nobody else around. When there were other people around, then it was much more formal. It's the same with musicians. Musicians I played chamber music with, we were all paired do and, and with first names. But in front of the full orchestra, when we were addressing one another, then it would be more formal. In the same way that a stage manager will call me by my first name when we're rehearsing in the rehearsal studio, but calling you to the stage. They don't call the artist to the stage by their first names. It's Miss This and Mr. That. I mean, it's just sort of if you like, it's protocol. And I felt no real necessity to change that. But, you know, we would always have, uh, I would always celebrate Australia Day in Hamburg. There was always a, a little party on Australia Day. And is um, never any doubt about my Australianness. <laughs> now, let's add another title to there. You're a conductor, of course. You're artistic director and you were a mm. managing director in, in Hamburg and all sorts of different awards and mm. professorships mm. and honorary doctorates yeah. and all these things. Well-deserved. No question about that. What about this new title of yours, Grandma? How's that? <laughs> How do you uh, fit into that role? Well, again, we've chosen the um, Australian variant. We're Nana and Papa uh -huh. rather than Grandma and Grandpa. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And uh, yes, I'm loving it, actually. It's a hard idea to get my head around originally because, I mean, at 56, I'm quite young to be a grandma of two. But on the other hand, there are real advantages to being a young grandparent and uh, having a lot of energy and I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm incredibly proud of my two daughters. I think they're both amazing. The elder one now works at Lord's and the younger one is studying music at King's in London and the elder one is the one with the two children and uh, they're doing great things. Yeah, and we're reading, of course, all the Australian classics to the grandchildren already. So uh, there'll be no doubt about their heritage, although they're half Scots, so it's a pretty interesting mix there. <laughs> well, it comes back to the Irish. It's all Celtic, isn't it? That's true, <laughs> yeah. Conductor Simone Young there. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about the Tall Pompey series, drop by our website, tall-poppies.com. That's tall-poppies.com. You can also drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you at the email address info at tall-poppies.com. Once again, that's info at tall-poppies.com. Sound engineer Thanos Karakantas helped put together this episode, which was produced in Berlin and made possible through the support of the Australian Embassy in Berlin. It was nice to have you with us today. I'm Brendan O'Shea and I look forward to welcoming you to our next Tall Poppies podcast very soon.